set your rule. Set your rule and reign in our hearts again. Increase in us, we pray.
bow for a word of prayer. God, we recognize this morning the Lamb is holy. Revelation tells us this will be the song in heaven. This is the song in heaven. The Lamb slain before the foundations of the world declared to be holy without blame. And it's because of His blamelessness God, that you are able to make us stand before you without blame and without fault. And this morning we may come in here and God, my brothers and sisters may feel in some ways blameworthy. Maybe they don't feel faultless. Maybe it's been a long week. God, you know the ways in which we've blown it, the ways in which we've sinned. And yet because of the holiness of Jesus and the sacrifice that he made upon the cross and rising again from the dead, we can stand before you blameless. Blameless because of the blood of Christ. That's, how we, that's why we worship you today, God. May we draw near, convinced that his blood is sufficient. 
our hearts find rest before you today in the finished work of Jesus Christ. As we continue to worship you, O oh God, through the proclamation and study of your word, we ask that your spirit would give us eyes to see, ears to hear, hearts that are soft. May you speak to us, O oh God, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. Welcome. We are worshiping with us today, and uh, we just, uh, we're glad that we can be here together uh, on the Lord's Day to, to celebrate the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And if you happen to be uh, visiting with us today, we want to extend a special welcome and remind you that if you, if you didn't on your way in, make sure you stop by the Welcome Center. Um, we'd like to get to know you a little bit better and find out how we can answer questions. Uh, um, and, and also, uh, don't forget that uh, those attendance binders will come by in, in your pews. Make sure that uh, if, you, if any of those check boxes apply to you, make sure you make a note there. If you've moved at all recently or if you happen to be visiting, uh, we'd love to, to know how to get in touch with you and, and, um, and be able to um, just find out how we can minister to you. Um, it's good to be with you, and it's good to be studying God's Word together. And I want to invite you to join me in 1 Corinthians 13. And uh, I, I love to hear the, the turning of the, the pages of people's Bibles. Um, I realize that with electronic devices, we can't, you know, they don't, they don't make the, those same kinds of noises typically. Um, but uh, I would love for you to follow along as we read and study God's Word this morning. First uh, Corinthians chapter 13. I realize that we cheated a little bit last week on Easter Sunday and we jumped ahead to chapter 15 uh, talking about the resurrection. Well, we're, we're going back here and, and getting back in the rhythm of talking about spiritual gifts. The context here is spiritual gifts. And as we read this chapter, or many, of already, or many of you already know what's coming in these verses. You'll think, that's not a, talking about spiritual gifts. That's the wedding passage. Well, hang on. We'll get there. There's a reason that it's situated here um, where it is. And so this morning we want to make sure we see it in the context of uh, the passage, the, the flow of the book that Paul has been talking about here and the issues that he's been dealing with, with the Corinthians. And, uh, and so uh, hopefully you found your place there. And uh, we're going to start at verse 31 of chapter 12 and then read through the end of this short chapter 13. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, beginning at verse 31, and then we'll flow right into chapter 13. But earnestly desire the higher gifts, and I will show you a still more excellent way. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but I have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all I have and I deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It's not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. As for prophecies, they will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. 
We know in part, and we prophesy in part. But when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. When I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I gave up childish ways. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. So now faith, hope, and love abide, these three. But the greatest of these is love. As I was studying this passage this week, I couldn't help but think of a massive title, a massive list of song titles. As we think about uh, this chapter about love, and we think about music in our culture, so much has been written about love. Now, whether it lines up with the Word of God, whether those lyrics or song titles uh, align themselves with the way that God's love is presented in Scripture, well, that's another story. But I, I couldn't help but uh, title my message and each of the points in my outline with song titles. Now, this is not an endorsement of the message of these songs, because I've found that there are a lot of theologically sound song titles, but then once you get into the lyrics, the wheels come off, and they kind of diverge from Scripture in some, some pretty significant ways. Uh, and so the title of this message is, What's Love Got to Do With It? And if you're a Tina, Tina Turner fan, you're welcome. If not, I'm sorry for putting that song in your head. Just a little bit, sorry, not super sorry. The context of what we're talking about here in 1 Corinthians 13 falls into this, this discussion of spiritual gifts. This, this chapter is sandwiched between uh, chapter 12 and chapter 13. I'm not great at math, but I can do a few numbers, and 13 falls between 12 and 14. And both 12 and 14 are discussing spiritual gifts. And many people think that Paul just kind of like wandered out like a, a senile person who's lost their way and just starts talking about love. And then he's like, oh yeah, I was talking about spiritual gifts. Let's get back to that in chapter 14. But that, that's not the case. This is all in the context. Paul knows what he's doing as he's led by the Spirit of God to write this. So he talks about love in the middle of this discussion about getting along as the body, serving one another, using our gifts to minister to one another. He talks about love because every one of these aspects of love here is a struggle that the Corinthians are having in displaying to one another as they do life together, as they minister and live alongside of each other. You see, the, Christian, the Corinthians had been arguing about which gifts were most important, which parts of the body were most indispensable. But Paul says the real question is not who's most important, not whose gift is the most glamorous. The real question is, does love permeate what we do as the body of Christ? Is love on display as we exercise our gifts among one another? Paul is blowing up the idea of a self-centered spirituality in this chapter he intends to show them, as chapter 12, verse 31 says, a more excellent way. So as we look at this passage, keep in mind why it falls where it does. It's not wrong for us to read this at wedding ceremonies. It's not wrong to stop and reflect on this passage as we think about our relationships with our spouses. It's, it's very appropriate to do that because, God willing, if your spouse is a believer, they're part of the body of Christ and we're we should be thinking about these things, but the immediate context reminds us 
that this passage is speaking to the church, a church here so desperately struggling to get along with one another. And so as we think about the text, the first three verses reminds us that we're nothing without love. In 2015, Nate Ruse sang this song, and in his, in his song, uh, he, was, he was expressing the, the, the feeling that he was empty or, or not complete without someone loving him in a romantic, loving way. Well, that's not what this section is telling us. This reminds us that no matter what we do in the body of Christ, no matter how great our accomplishments, they're all worthless if they're not done in love. Look at these verses. Paul, Paul uses some interesting pictures to describe the grandiose nature that uh, ministry could attain to. And, I, and I, don't, I don't even think that these are realistic things that took place or could happen. Paul was using uh, hyperbole here to make a point. He says, I could speak in the tongues of men and angels. Remember, they had been debating and, and, and arguing about speaking in the gifts of tongues. He says, I could even speak in an angelic tongue. But if I have not love, I'm a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. Have you ever seen a a two-year-old on a, on a drum set, I mean, it's, it's not going to sound beautiful and melodious and harmonic. Uh, that's what Paul's picture is here. He says, I'm just making a bunch of racket. If I can do these amazing things, but they're done without love. He goes on to say, um, I, I could have all the, all the knowledge of every mystery in the world. I could figure out everything. Have you ever, have you ever uh, done like a... Uh, trivial pursuit with someone who like gets all the right answers. Super fun, isn't it? They're like, are you kidding me? Like, do you do anything besides sit here and just read these cards and memorize the answers when nobody's looking? Come on. How do you know all this stuff? My dad always used to pride himself in the amount of useless knowledge that he had. Um, Paul says, I could know everything. I could figure out every mystery I could have all faith. He said, faith even that moves mountains. I could be the kind of person who trusts God 24-7, never budging, never having a moment of fear or doubt or weakness. He said, I could be the, the most trusting, dependent upon God person ever. I could give away everything that I have. He says, even in verse 3, Go to the extent of delivering up his body to be burned. Ultimate sacrifice of giving his life. And he says, but if I have not love, I am nothing. This is a profound, profound couple of verses. You see, so many of us tie our importance or our value in the things that we do, our success, even those Christian-type accomplishments. And Paul says, it is possible to serve God with every fiber of your being. And it amount to nothing because it was not done in love. This has incredible implications for our homes for our churches, and the way that we live in this world. You can be extremely productive, yet be without love. You can be very gifted, yet be without love. 
You can know the scriptures inside and out and yet be without love. You can be outrageously generous, yet be without love. You can make great sacrifices for God, yet be without love. Paul wants us to understand that the extravagance of the sacrifice pales in comparison to the nothingness of the results. If that sacrifice is done without love. This is the kind of love that seeks the highest good of another person. Even at the price of my own comfort. My own safety. My own benefit. This is a high love. So we see that no matter what our accomplishments are. We are nothing without love. Secondly, though, if you're an 80s fan, you're welcome. We ask the question then, what is love? I, I want to know what love is. What does it look like, God, for me to love in this way? If there is a danger in me living, working for God, sacrificing, using my gifts, if there's a danger in ministering in a way that is empty, void, and will come to naught, then what does it look like for me to minister out of a heart of love? And so in verses 4 through 7, the Apostle Paul tells us what love is. The translations here make it appear as if each of these descriptors are adjectives, but they're not. They're actually verbs. It reminds us that love is not a static thing. It's not a feeling. It's not simply an emotion. It's not conveyed statically. Paul is not interested in traits or qualities. He's interacted, interested in action. How does love live itself out among the body of Christ? Love cannot remain stored up in our hearts as followers of Jesus Christ. This is a lesson that I am continually learning. You can say one thing. You can express your love even in the most poetic of verses. But it's meaningless if it is not lived out if it is not seen, if it does not touch the hearts and lives of those around us. And each of these qualities Paul is going to list, as I mentioned briefly before, has to do with issues in the Corinthian church. Paul lists them for a reason. He's not just like, uh, what can I throw in this list? He had purpose with each and every statement he made. And if we had time, we could go tie them all back, each and every quality, with uh, passages that we've already studied in this book that he's addressing directly. Remember when I talked about this? Well, that action was a lack of love in this way. The way you were treating each other, for example, that whole meat offered to idols thing, here's what you were doing. You were not showing love in this way. We also have to remember as we read this list that this is not a checklist. We have to have to see here what he doesn't say. He does not say... In verse 4, you be patient, you be kind, you shouldn't envy or boast, you shouldn't be arrogant. Certainly there are parts of the Bible that speak that way, 
But Paul wants them to understand that this is the heart of God toward them and that their actions toward each other should flow from the relationship they have with God, the heart of God in this sacrificial love that is exhibited to them. We could spend a lot of time on each and every one of these. We're just going to go through them kind of quickly. The first one he mentions is love is patient. This is a a spirit of long-suffering, despite every reason to come unglued, despite every reason to lose it. There is a self-restraint to this love. There is a waiting. There is a resting. There is a love that bears with one another. Love is to be patient. This morning, God reminds us that we're to be patient with each other. None of us, none of us are where we need to be. All of us, last I checked the scriptures, are still sinners. Your spouse is a sinner. Nobody amen that. You are a sinner. The church members in the pew sitting next to you, we're we're sinners. We're going to blow it. The pastors here, the elders, the deacons, we'll make mistakes. We're all sinful human beings, and God calls us to be patient with one another. He says, secondly, love is kind. There's like 15 things here, but we're, we're not going to spend a lot of time on them. Uh, love is kind. Love is kind. This is the only time this verb is used in the New Testament. In, in the New Testament. It's the idea of actively seeking the good of others. It's, it's not just being a pleasant person, just nice all the time, but it goes beyond that. It, there's an active seeking ways in which you can pour out the grace of God in other people. Some of us think that kindness is just not blowing our lid and, and just, you know, just kind of going with the flow and not upsetting the apple cart. That, that's, that's not kindness. Kindness is actively looking for ways to demonstrate the grace of God to other people. Then he goes into several here that, that they kind of sort, sort of describe it negatively. Like these are some things that love is not. And interestingly, as we mentioned, these are ways in which the Corinthians were acting with one another, ways that they were treating each other. Verse 4 says, love does not envy. This is an interesting word because sometimes it can be used positively. In fact, it was used just back in verse 31 in a positive way of chapter 12. He says, earnestly desire the higher gifts. That's that same Greek word here that is translated envy in verse 4. So there's a, there's a passion behind it. But when it gets used negatively, it means to be filled with that, that resentment or negative feelings over others' achievements or successes. It's a jealous longing for your betterment to another's detriment. You know, sometimes when, especially if you're a sports fan, uh, you might pick your team. You've got a team in the, in the tournament or in the, in the World Series that you're just rooting for. But most of us, if you're a sports fan, there's, al- there's always a team in there that you're just like, no matter what, as long as they lose, I'll be happy. 
You know, uh, for, uh, for many of us baseball fans, I'm that way with the Yankees. I just love to see the Yankees go down. I don't have a great reason for that. just love to see the Yankees go down. I'm a Michigan State fan. i got to be honest. I'm not one of those guys that like, well, if Michigan State doesn't have a good year, at least Michigan's doing well. No, I want to see them go down. I want to see them lose. I want to see them fail. <laughs> That's not the picture of love that God is trying his people to have. Like, we should not take delight in other people tanking. And that's what this picture of envy uh, 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 um, conjures up here, is that it's not just like I'm jealous of other people. It's more than that. It's like, yeah, they suffered. Yes, they were wrong. Good to see them be wrong. I know that none of you ever feel that way. So this is probably just God speaking to me this week. But um, God says love is not like that. Love does not rejoice when we see other people fail, especially our brothers and sisters in Christ. Think about that for a second, just for two or three seconds. To delight in a child of God falling into sin, making a, a... a train wreck of their life, blowing it. Where does that come from? That's not the heart of God. Love does not envy. The next one he says is love does not boast. Love is not heaping praise upon oneself. This is a rare word in the New Testament. It literally means to behave as a braggart or one who is a pompous windbag. I love that phrase. It suggests self-centered actions in which there is an inordinate desire to call attention to oneself. Can anyone say social media? <laughs> like, this is the world of social media, the humble brag. The, I just thought I'd throw this out there, and then we list off all of the things we've done that day. Paul is directly attacking the situation that he finds in Corinth. People who were putting themselves first, people who wanted to present themselves as the best, the brightest. We need to keep going, but he says love is not arrogant. This is that idea of being puffed up and proud. It was almost silly that the Corinthians were acting this way, given the crazy amount of unchecked sin that was going on in their midst. He's like, are you guys serious? Why are you even proud? You have nothing to be proud of. You guys are a mess. He says love is not arrogant. We all have blind spots, though. Even the holiest among us has a long way to go. In fact, is I've spent time around men and women that, that seem to me to be very godly and, and very holy. I discover as I listen to them, they're more acutely aware of their sinfulness. They're, they're more sensitive to the wrongs that they have done. Alistair Begg says this, Arrogance has a big head, but love has a big heart. How about you? You act and live in a way where pride has taken over. God says the love that he calls us to is not arrogant. Number six, love is not rude, does not behave disgracefully, dishonorably, indecently. Um, some commentators think this could be an allusion to the sexual sin that the Corinthians had been accepting. He goes on to say love does not insist on its own way. It doesn't demand itself first. Rather, true love 
seeks the highest good of others. I remember when we, when we lived in China, uh, I was always taught that when you're um, getting in line, that, you know, if you're, if maybe if you're arriving to a line at the same time as other people, it's nice to let others go first. You see a family with young kids, oh, why don't you go for, you got your arms full, why don't you go first? Well, I, we discovered that in China, lines are not like that. It's every man for himself. And if you're at all polite, if you're all considering about putting other people first, you will wait in that line forever to get on a bus, to get into uh, the zoo, whatever it is. Uh, if, if you don't throw some elbows, um, you're going to be there forever. That was, that, was a strange, that was a strange thing. We were always taught to be polite, let, others, let women and children go first, let the elderly go first. I, I mean, I saw some, some grandmas who could really, really shove their way around pretty good. And so you had to kind of learn to not be that way, or you're going to be in that line forever, or you were not going to make your bus, or whatever it was. Um, but in the church, God is not okay with us living that way. God's not okay with us uh, throwing elbows to, to get our own way. Love does not insist on its own way. Love is not irritable. This describes someone who's easily uh, set off, and God says, no, I don't want you to be that way. Don't be constantly irritated. Um, love is not resentful. Literally, this passage, or this, this phrase could be treated, it doesn't reckon the evil. It doesn't hold on to things. This doesn't mean that we stick our head in the sand, as it were, regarding evil and sin. But, whether we cho- but rather, we choose not to keep a tally. We don't look for ways to get payback. Some of your translation says, love keeps no record of wrongs. It's, it doesn't have a list. You know, some of us have, it seems like our memory doesn't work with anything else, but we remember wrongs, don't we? We've got that list of the ways that people have hurt us, the ways that people have wronged us. That's like cancer. Brothers and sisters, that's like cancer. It's cancer in your soul, and it's cancer in the body. It will eat away at you, and it will eat away at a local church. If we hold on to wrongs, let's acknowledge that we're going to sin against one another. As sinful people living, serving, ministering, interacting with one another, we we are going to do things wrong. And he says love doesn't hold on to that. Love doesn't hold on to that. And I just want to linger here for a second. And if God's Spirit is convicting you of a way in which you've allowed resentment to grow in your heart, I want to just encourage you to deal with that. Bring that before the Lord and ask Him to set you free. You, maybe you've already talked to that person. Maybe you had a conversation and you had it out and you talked about it and you parted ways and I, I forgive you, you forgive me. All right. But inwardly, it's still eaten away. God wants you to bring that before him. And maybe that's like an every day. Maybe it's like seven, 17 times a day. You're bringing it back before God and laying it down there. He doesn't want you to live in resentment. He doesn't want you to keep a record of wrongs. Beginning in verse 7 here, he's going to list four things now as he kind of winds this, this section to a close. He says um, four different things, and he uses the phrase the, the Greek word panta, which it means all, everything. 
Paul is not going to let us weasel out. He's not going to let us try to sit here and make our list of excuses as to why we can't be loving to one another. Yeah, but you don't know what she did. You don't know what he said about me. You don't know what... Paul says, listen, listen to verse 7 very carefully. He says, love bears all things. Love believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. The first and the fourth one go closely together, and the middle two go closely together. Love bears all things, endures all things. The picture there is to stand up under great difficulty, to endure. Love, one writer says, bears, endures, and puts up with much. It does not forsake people when life is arduous and one's energy is taxed. Paul says no matter what the person you love does, no matter how offensive that person is to you, you always forgive. You bear with one another patiently. Ephesians 4 reminds us of this same truth. We bear with one another. He also says that love believes all things, hopes all things. This is more than just not being suspicious of one another. It's more than just being an eternal optimist. One pastor says, Paul does not mean that love always believes the best about everything and everyone, but that love never ceases to trust God and thus leave justice in God's hands. It is in this sense that it never loses hope. Love looks to see God's best realized and one another. There is a tremendous and a high calling upon the church in these verses. You see, there's only one who has ever done this perfectly. None of us have this down. I don't care how great your marriage is, how well and faithfully you've practiced this among God's people. There's only one who has ever lived this out in perfection. In fact, we could read the passage like this. Jesus is patient Jesus is kind. Jesus, he doesn't envy or boast. Jesus is not arrogant. Jesus is not rude. Even though he's God, he doesn't insist on his own way. Jesus is not irritable or resentful. Jesus does not rejoice at wrongdoing. Jesus rejoices with the truth. Jesus bears all things believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. See, the, 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 final, the final song that brings this passage to a close by Carl Carlton, Everlasting Love. That one will be in your head today. And Paul wanted the Corinthians to see, and, and we don't have time to walk through the last couple of verses but he says, listen, all this other stuff will pass away. 
the tongues, the prophecy, the faith, the the knowledge, all that stuff, that's all going to pass away. All these spiritual gifts you guys are bickering about, one day it will all pass away. But there is something that will endure. And he says it at the end. He actually says three things. Faith, hope, and love abide, these three. But the greatest of these is love. He says that's what's going to remain. When all these things pass away, what will still remain is love. The love that we are called to have for one another. But the real question is, how in the world do we do it? How do we love like this? How can this possibly come to fruition? How how, how can we realize this love in our homes and specifically within the body of Christ? We've already said it, we're sinners. God probably specifically spoke to you about a couple of those as we walked through, and you're like, man, I don't do that well at all. In fact, I sure hope that as we walk through this, there was some part of your heart that was like, I kind of stink at this. I'm not good at this. I can't do this. You see, what that does is that brings us to the gospel. That brings us to the one who does this perfectly. You see, without coming back to the heart of God, we're left with a bunch of do's and don'ts that will leave us endlessly frustrated. There's an old story that you've probably, you've probably heard in sermon illustrations before, but I'll repeat it here of a farmer who loved his king. And one day, he had grown a, a huge carrot in his, in his fields, and he wanted to present this massive carrot to the king. He brought it before him and said, My liege, this is the greatest thing I have ever produced or will ever produce, and I would like to give it to you as a token of my esteem to honor you. He walked away, left the king's presence, and the king, as he was walking out the door, stopped him. He said, wait, wait. He said, what a delight, what a joy you have just given to me. I would like to give you a double portion of your land. I'm going to double your land so that you have twice the farm that you had before. And, of course, the man went home rejoicing, thrilled in his heart, the kindness of the king. There was a nobleman who raised horses, and he heard the story, and he thought to himself, well, if the king would give that kind of a reward for a carrot, imagine the reward he would give if I gave him one of my best steeds. The nobleman comes, brings his horse to the king, and he says, my liege, this is the best horse I've ever raised. Please receive it as a token of my esteem. The king looked at him discerned his heart and said, you disgust me. The nobleman said, what? This is a lot better than a stupid carrot. The king said, oh, no. No, it's not. You see, it isn't because the farmer gave me the carrot. But you see, you gave yourself this horse. I got nothing from you. The farmer gave out of his heart, out of love for me. 
but you gave out of love for yourself. You see, the farmer didn't give in order to get something he really wanted. The, the king was loved, genuinely and truly loved by the farmer, but not at all by the nobleman. Think about God for a second. There's one of us over here just giving God carrots. Messed up, broken, sinner. Personally, person constantly stumbling, sliding back, but expressing his love and devotion to God. And you got over here another person, so moral, so self-disciplined, has everything in his life in order and lined up. He gives money, helps the poor, does amazing things, incredibly gifted. And it's possible for God to be utterly disgusted with that and welcome an opening to this person who doesn't have it together. Why? We saw it all throughout the life of Jesus, the self-righteous Pharisee who tithed on his spice rack and gave money and worked for God, and Jesus mocked them and called them names like a whitewashed grave, and yet his heart went out to those who were broken who are stumbling. Why? Let's look at our hearts. Why is it that you pray? Why do you give? Why do you come here Sunday mornings? To get something from God? To, to ignite His generosity? To get Him to answer those prayers? To manipulate Him? If that's our heartbeat, we don't have a personal relationship with him at all. He's simply an obstacle, a channel to get what we want. He's a means to be used. But you know what? He still loves you. He's still extending his arms to you. Just Jesus didn't love the Pharisees any less than he loved the broken but he knew that they needed to hear something different than the one who was broken. This whole thing of us loving one another, it's impossible. We can't do it. That's why we have to be enamored with the king. We can only begin to love others like this when we've embraced the one who loves us like this. If I'm going about trying to manipulate, trying to, trying to coerce him into acting a certain way, we're going to get nowhere. But when we recognize and dwell upon his great love for us, for you and for me, it's only then we begin to have the strength to open up our hearts and love like this incredible passage calls us to love. Only when we are taken 
with Jesus will our hearts begin to open up with others. No amount of self-discipline, no amount of forced effort of grinding our teeth is going to help us successfully love in the way that we are called to love. It's only with beholding God's great love for us that our hearts begin to thaw towards one another. I love what Tim Keller says. He says, before you can do love, you have to have a head-on collision with love. Paul is first of all saying, look at it, not do it, look at it. I'm going to show it to you. Before you can do love, you have to meet love. You have to encounter love. You have to have a collision with love. You have to be confronted by love. Only then will you be able to actually become loving. I want to ask you this morning, have you met love? Have you collided with love? Do you let your heart... I, I, just, I just read yesterday a phrase in, in 1 Peter. I'm drawing a blank on the, on the passage. Um, but he says, um, let your hearts dwell continually on grace. Let, let your hearts be, be fed with grace. That's that colliding with love and basking in the love of God for you, His grace toward you. I read with the worship team this passage the Lord laid on my heart this morning. Has, uh, didn't have it in my notes, but I just I love this, this text in Zephaniah. And God is promising Israel in this context that, that there's going to be a day when they're going to be set free from the judgment that they're experiencing, that God is going to bring renewal and hope. And he says, on that day, let it be said to Jerusalem, fear not, O Zion, let your hands not grow weak. The Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. and He will exult over you with loud singing. Do you ever just let yourself sit in a passage like that? God says he will quiet you with his love, and he sings over you. The creator of the universe wants to quiet your heart with love. I can think of so many reasons why he wants to do that. But for some of us, right now, as we read a passage like 1 Corinthians 13, our hearts immediately are like, man, I just got to do better. I just got to work harder. I got to stop doing that, and I got to start doing this. And God says, I want to quiet you with my love. Just stop worrying about, about how you're going to go out here and grit your teeth and put your nose to the grindstone and do better at loving your spouse, and loving the people in the pew next to you. Just stop that for a second and just be quieted by my love. Just sit and soak in my compassionate heart for you. Because it's only when we see and feel and sense the heart of God toward us that our hearts begin to rise up in love toward one another. I want to close with the words of John Newton. You all know him, right? He wrote, wrote Amazing Grace. Any human besides the Apostle Paul and Jesus, of course, if any human 
begin to get this, it was John Newton. And he wrote a letter to, to a, a friend who was struggling with how to deal with an enemy, with a rival, with someone who had just been mean to them. And they were just ugh, irked, and they wanted to stick it to this person. This is what John Newton wrote to him. He said, remember, the Lord loves him and bears with him. Therefore, you must not despise him or treat him harshly. You see, the Lord bears with you likewise. And he expects that you should show tenderness to others. From a sense of the much forgiveness you need yourself. In a little while, the two of you will meet in heaven. And he will then be dearer to you than the nearest friend you have upon earth is to you right now. Anticipate that period in your thoughts. And though you may find it necessary to oppose his errors, view him personally as a kindred soul with whom you are to be happy in Christ forever. How do we love people like that? How do we love each other when people get under our skin? Do you think Jesus like never had people... Like, do you think he never had annoying people around him? Do you think that, that the Apostle Paul never had obnoxious, loudmouth, bombastic people, pompous windbags around him? How can he talk about loving like this? Because I believe his gaze was fixed upon the one who loved him more than he could ever imagine, and he was constantly overwhelmed at the grace and the forgiveness he received each and every day, and he couldn't help but love because he knew the measure with which he had been forgiven. May we, as we seek to be the body of Christ, as we seek to use our gifts, as we seek to, to make a difference in one another's lives and in this community, may we always keep in mind, may we daily have a collision with the God who loves us more than we can ever imagine, more than we can fathom or ever think. And may that change our hearts as we live with and love one another. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we read a passage like this and we think, I can't do this. I'm no good at this. God, I do believe that you want us to see we don't have within our strength to love this way. The most determined among us may make some progress. The most self-disciplined may make a good showing. But the reality is that we all fail at this a thousand times a day. And God, we stand before you as needy, needy people. We need your grace. And God, I pray that if this morning you need to just overwhelm us for just a little while and open the window at just what a wreck we truly are for those of us who might be struggling with pride and self-sufficiency and arrogance, thinking we've got this, we're not so bad at this. Lord, just open up that window in your kindness to just show us how, how far off we really are. 
And then in your kindness and goodness, turn us back toward Jesus to remember his great forgiveness of us, the daily grace that flows from the cross to to an undeserving sinner like me. God, may we just behold you, the one who is kind to us, May we collide with love each day, throughout the day, so that our hearts will be open towards others. I believe, God, as we behold you and your goodness and kindness toward us, demonstrated supremely upon the cross in sending your Son to die in our place, to rise again from the dead. May our hearts be transformed. May our hearts be thawed out and melted toward one another. Oh God, this is your will for the body, that we love one another. And it goes beyond this, the walls of this church because our Savior told us this is how the world will know that we are your disciples by our love for one another. Lord God, we can only do that by your grace as we behold your grace. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Now the God who is from everlasting to everlasting, who has loved you with an everlasting love and gives you everlasting life, now support you with the everlasting arms in these days and in all the days until Jesus comes. Amen.